linguistic Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. Well, as I said last week, uh, I'm not going to do any kind of uh, year-end program or anything like that uh, right now. In fact, uh, this will be my last podcast until uh, about the second week in January. Uh, you know, like uh, some of my fellow podcasters, I'm going to take a little time off and just kick back and visit with friends and family for the next couple of weeks. And uh, I know that uh, a lot of you still have to go to work for most days uh, during these holidays, but uh, for us retired people and students, uh, well, we appreciate all you do to keep the world turning for us, and uh, we hope that you get to take some time off and relax as well. And uh, particularly you moms out there, uh, you know, give yourselves a break and take a few hours off and just do nothing if you can. Uh, <laughs> I know it's hard this time of year, but uh, you know, there's always that one more present or one more card or one more box of cookies to take to a friend, and uh, uh, nothing like a relaxing holiday season, huh? But uh, I jest, of course. Uh, it is fun to reconnect with family and friends, and uh, even with the ones that uh, think you're the weird one when the uh, truth is actually the other way around. <laughs> but uh, speaking of friends uh, who are on your same wavelength, uh, I want to thank a friend of the salon, Francis D., who uh, made a very generous donation to uh, help with the expenses of producing these podcasts. So uh, thank you, Francis. Uh, we all really appreciate your help and I hope that you and yours all have a wonderful holiday season. Now uh, getting on to uh, today's program, as promised we'll pick up right where the last podcast ended with Rupert and Ralph discussing the challenges facing uh, big science versus today's grassroots science. And once again, uh, I've left this recording intact, uh, complete with a few long pauses when uh, they were obviously trying to figure out what to say next. And as I mentioned last week, uh, these trialogue recordings were made in September 1991 and uh, apparently were recorded for their own use, uh, perhaps in planning another public trialogue or to gather information for uh, one of their books. Uh, in any event, uh, these quiet little recording sessions are uh, starting to grow on me and uh, I hope you feel the same way. So uh, the next uh, 14 minutes or so will be the conclusion of their first session where they were discussing the relative merits of uh, big science versus grassroots science. Then there's a uh, brief pause in the tape and uh, right away they begin the second session and uh, that begins with them uh, discussing future books and trialogues, uh, some of which materialize later and uh, some of which did not. Uh, and once again, uh, they, <laughs> they began their recording session uh, by first chanting Om, which uh, I find quite charming myself. Uh, so let's join them now. So one of the faults of big science is uh, associated with uh, the reductionist perspective, I suppose, is this gradual progressive, never-ending elimination, trimming, pruning off different things that are labeled as uh, pseudosciences, uh, amateur fringe science, and 
all so subjective. Subjective, all the paranormal, all the nutritional, all kind of alternative medical, all these things that are rejected comprise a daily growing group. While the number of uh, natural phenomena studied by big science, official science, and establishment science is always shrinking. <laughs> so the um, one of the important gains of a new model for uh, alternative science would be to open up cracks in the structure for the reintegration of all these different threads, which represents a kind of a holistic approach to the whole field of knowledge, especially when you include archaeology, history, the social fanaticism, and so on. What we're talking about is bigger than science, really. It's the reintegration of the entire intellectual sphere. Of research in general? Yes. Yes, because there's a great deal of amateur historical research goes on yes. through local history yeah. societies yes. and so on, uh, which is on the whole unintegrated with professional endeavours. Um, so that's one thing. I think one one fi one further thing that uh, is worth considering is the formulation of questions. Now I'm trying to do it in my book called Eight Experiments to Say to Change the World. Um, where I formulated eight specific research areas with eight specific experiments that could be done on very low budgets, any one of which would have a paradigm-shattering effect. Taken together, it uh, would reduce our present model of the world to, to rubble and uh, require the, the uh, adoption of a much larger and holistic view of reality. These would be... Um, they're all things that can be done for budgets of $100 or less. Now, I've spent some years trying to think out this kind of experiment, and the ones I've finally come up with for this book are selected from about 20 or 30 that I've considered. But this is my own unaided efforts, and it's a virgin field, and I can't believe that I'm the only person capable of thinking of these things. There must be many people, given the incentive, who could think up really good questions. Um, one thing that happened with morphic resonance research uh, was a competition run by the New Scientist magazine for experimental designs for morphic resonance, with prizes totaling only £250, uh, which led to a considerable wave of creativity in experimental design. Um, in terms of large-scale questions, the kind of um, endeavour I've been engaged in, in thinking up simple experiments, is something which groups of people such as ourselves or, or such as exist in many parts of the world could get together and think of questions and not only think of the questions but think of ways in which they could be plausibly implemented on low budgets by groups of amateurs actually work out questions and possible strategies that could be implemented uh, these would then be uh, competitions one way uh, a kind of forum for questions uh, in which these questions were published and uh, you know, the, the most interesting ones would be taken up by others and stimulate a public debate is another. But this is an important component of it, and this is something that costs nothing. It just involves people yes. sitting around thinking and talking. And um, this, I think, is a very important component of it because there are lots of people in place who can do the experiments, but most people outside the scientific endeavour have not um, felt empowered to ask the kinds of questions which you can ask. And because my own background is in experimental science, I don't have that particular inhibition. Um, 
but um, most people once they get into the idea or at least a lot of people when they get into the whole mode of thinking up questions for themselves not feeling they can't ask them because they're not professional scientists um, um, are quite capable of appreciating understanding and asking these sorts of questions so the realm of question formulation and experimental design in this context is a vast one uh, which um, is a wide open field and which could lead to interesting debates, publications, letters. It could be done through existing popular science journals if new scientists or even nature had a page in each issue yes. devoted to the discussion of, que of less than a thousand dollar research projects or things yes. appropriate. Small science A question every, every corner. science journal should have a question corner. That's right, and then readers' letters, where people would write in and, and say, well, that design wouldn't work very well, it'd be better to do it this way. A whole debate could be started within international science journals themselves and things like Scientific American New Scientist, which would have a, a great reader attraction potential and, and would cost virtually nothing and could exist within, yes. within existing... We need a magazine works. called Poor Scientific American. <laughs> <laughs> Well, some journals already have a, science, uh, a question corner, I suppose, like the Journal of Seriology. I think they're interested in posing questions. That's right, and they also have people's predictions for the year, where people can offer their predictions about yes. what's going to happen. Next year's discoveries. Yes. Um, well, something of this kind probably wouldn't survive actually as a separate journal, but as an e once this idea got more widespread, Yes. Um, within existing periods, even newspapers could run them on their science pages, and 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 um, there could be sort of sections of this in schools and universities, student societies, and so on. There could be, uh, if there was some forum in which the questions could be aired, if some means by which they could be not merely sterile exercises and imagination, but rather. And have prizes or competitions that stimulate this and give a personal reward to those who think them up and also yes. some means by which the research can be implemented, implemented and fed into the amateur networks um, then we'd have a, a com completely different model like in psychedelic research you see one could formulate particular questions which one could ask of people who take mushrooms or cannabis or whatever um, DMT and the various psychedelics questions which would be um, which seem interesting or important to those experienced in the field which could be asked of many people people could write in to some mm -hmm. central address mm -hmm. or, or through some newsletter or networks or something this information could be collected but formulating questions is an extremely important part of this whole vision and endeavor and fortunately that's the cheapest part of the whole thing as you know, mathematics, well, it's not a science, but it has this alternative structure already. It's always been very strongly influenced by, by questions and uh, prize competitions. And the uh, bulletin of the American Mathematical Society has a regular question corner. And uh, students and all kind of amateurs send in their uh, entries, attempted answers of these uh, problems. Some of them are quite difficult. So there's an existing model up and running. Yes, which uh, it uh, has a very strong stimulating effect on the whole development of the subject. Mm. And some of the best people are in charge of the question corner.
Yes. Well, well, Scientific American, the amateur scientist yes. section the, the of that has run for years, and yes. uh, some quite intricate experiments very, very intricate. are carried out for very little money. Yeah. Mm. So we've already got models up and running. Yes. So how could all this be implemented? Well, we have a uh, we sort of, sort of derived a, a uh, workable alternative system. You're assuming that other paradigms in society would shift simultaneously, then this would naturally happen. I think the key for, just for example, on the integration of the different paradigm shifts, the, the, the key for the transformation into this new model would be changes in the universities and high schools. We mentioned several times high school students responding to these prize problems and not so many times university students. Um, universities have been one of the main institutions supporting this uh, restrictive peer review, super professional uh, and archaic model of science. If universities were reformed so that they had um, departments of integration, as it were, uh, interdisciplinary programs, and a holistic approach, then they could play a tremendous role, you see, in preparing people, educating people to be amateur scientists, for example. And uh, interesting them in many of these problems. I mean, the, the, the questions being proposed by the uh, question setters should become part of the curriculum in universities, for example as morphic resonance research has penetrated universities a little bit. At the mm. university, for example, that is a model that should be uh, spread worldwide. Universities should be revitalized along with the uh, revitalization of science and the careers. Like in uh, physical education, so-called, some schools have team sports. You see, these are of no use whatsoever to the amateur athlete. Very few universities, like my university, the University of California at Santa Cruz, had no team sports and only individual sports because they wanted to prepare people for a new society. It was formed in the 1960s when, in the hip subculture, everybody gave up team sports and wanted only individual sports, something that you could continue throughout your entire lifetime. So that's a kind of change which is wanted in universities and all their other structures so that uh, the full holistic range of intellectual endeavor, including well, what we call research, is nothing more than participation. The person who's going to participate in life, in evolution, in building the future of the planet and the species, then among other things, it's necessary to do research. One should be an amateur athlete and an amateur scientist and an amateur historian and so on. Everyone should throughout their lifetime. If universities are preparing people with a model of education, of self-education, which could be continued uh, indefinitely, then of course they would be teaching this. They would be teaching grassroots science. Where to find the questions, where to publish the answers, how to use the computer to, how to do it. 
in a sense, the move in science teaching and other forms of teaching towards students doing projects, which has been something that's been going on for several years now, is working in this direction. Because now students are taught to do projects, and a lot of the teaching is supposed to happen through projects. The only trouble is the projects they do are ones of the most utter banality and derivative kind for the most part, because yeah. it's not assumed that a student can really do a serious and interesting project of any wider interest. These are like juvenile training exercises for research rather than the real thing. And there's no doubt people need training in research methods, but uh, there's very few student projects that I've ever come across are conceived of as being real research. Now, the morphic resonance ones are real research, and there may be other areas where they do real research in student projects, but um, the direction of training students to do projects is already in place. This is mainstream. It's right. just that taking seriously what's yeah. already mainstream hasn't happened yet. Yeah, students are demanding more interesting problems to set them. And because they're not set them, they abandon science and go to something else which is more interesting. And then they have real problems that students can address, like the computer science. So the uh, the creation of a new model for science, for grassroots science, would actually give universities the opportunity to revitalize their science curriculum, thereby yes. attracting once more the better students who are talented, particularly that, giving them something to aim at in their lifetime of research without uh, large grants and working in big laboratories for the military-industrial complex. So I, I think it's, uh, this, this whole discussion provides very good news for universities. Okay. Well, I think we've solved the problems of science. Yes. Yeah. Oh, well, that was an awesome. It's a quarter now. Yes. On the money. On the money. Good. And as I predicted, it was good we didn't quit a couple of times when we thought of it because then. Um, oh, it never yeah. entered my mind. <laughs> <laughs> You know, if the future of intelligence is inadequate in the light of subsequent reading, we can do that one again. And it'll be much better second time. So I, I don't see, unless there's some other pressing reason, I rather enjoy the trilogues, and I, I think the concentrated form is better than once a month. I think you get into gear and into the mood, and it, it flows better. You know, it's like, instead of writing one chapter, you know, of a book on the first few days of each month, I mean, actually, I find it easier to get right in and keep working day after day. It may be a different style. Yes. No, I like the way of doing it. I think if we had uh, subjects in advance and gave them some preparation, it would be better. For example, if we come here to give a workshop, then we cram a certain amount of homework a day or two in advance. And originally, our fantasy for subsequent volumes was to go to um, rent a house in Glastonbury and to do a number of trilogues on one subject about the neighborhood. Mm. Um, but I think today went well. Yeah, I don't think there's any problem so far. Why don't we just carry on and... If yes, let's carry on. I mean, yes. the That we weren't allowing the fact that we get together so rarely to dictate that we then try to jam too much into these things, and that 
we might be better served in the end if we, in an ideal situation, did them uh, more infrequently with more preparation. Well, I think we could take that approach for Volume 3, but Volume 2 is... I mean, we, the fact is that it's really difficult to get together, and, and here we are. We are together. Yes, we well, must well, we'll do them. And if we don't like what we've done, we can throw it away. But yes, we'll regard it as the roulette approach. We'll do six or seven, maybe three or four of them we'll like, and we don't know which one. And if we can get together at other times, all well and good, but, I mean, it's hardly possible. This is the only time we come to well, the for US. Prague, and let's say we'll do one trilogue in Prague. We'll decide yes. the subject two, three months in advance and do anybody who wants to do homework can do so. Okay, I must say Prague. volume three is a phrase I hoped never to hear. Last <laughs> well, would be fun. Yes. Without doing this, I assure you. Time <laughs> is getting worn down. It's getting worn down. Yes, well, we'll have to bring back this. That may have to come, Terence. Talking about it won't suffice. Talking about it definitely won't suffice. Okay, well, let's roll here. What? It doesn't matter. Oh, it's maybe warm there. Do you want it drawn on Well, it's too hot in here. So. Oh, well, then let it bleed heat. I don't mind. Well, we can always open the dome. Okay. Mm. 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 Better light. I think this would go on over right up here. Maybe. Well, that shines straight in my eyes. Yes, okay. Because we're sitting... We maybe don't need the central light. It can we? also be dialed down. We... Well, try putting it off. Clear off. I think that's quite adequate. Nice. Alright, so we need a chant. Um, saving the world. But we're going to chant, right? Mm -hmm. We need to save the world chant. Yes. So what'll it be? Is that a hum or a free? Omahum. Or an Omaha, perhaps. <laughs> the mantra of North America.
picture of the sound you want, Paul? Yeah. Very good. Uh, this particular trilogue <clears throat> is titled Saving the World, and I thought it would be interesting to discuss this theme, first of all, because I think that there's a great deal of uh, pessimism about the subject, Saving the World, that people feel that if they can imagine a set of policies or uh, actions that might be taken to save the world, that then somehow uh, these policies are uh, unlikely to be realized because the inertia of uh, human bad habits will somehow interfere with the best intentions and that uh, hortatory ravings of the Sermon on the Mount variety have clearly failed if mere speaking about saving the world could do the job it would have been saved quite some time ago so what's needed then is a, a, a notion or a set of notions which will somehow um, not run counter to the general flow of uh, human needs, weaknesses and expectations and yet create a radical change in um, the nature of our world. And as I look at the various factors which seem to be pushing the world toward ruin, the one that I come back to again and again as being central to any social program which would create a sane and caring future for our children and lessen the impact of human beings on the environment is the problem of overpopulation. All other social problems can be seen uh, as being driven by the excess of human population on the earth, which has in our own lifetimes reached a criticality anticipated by Malthus and other pessimistic thinkers in the past, and yet even as we speak, there is no um, serious assault on this problem. Population growth and its handmaiden resource depletion are running rampant over the surface of the planet. Uh, is there anything that could be done to mitigate this situation and buy us a little time? And I think the general uh, feeling about this is no, there is not. That because people enjoy sex, because people enjoy family life, because uh, people are not educated concerning birth control and so forth, that somehow this is a problem we just avert our gaze from in the hope that perhaps war, epidemic, disease, or some other natural catastrophe will intervene and do the work that we as uh, human planners have been unable to do. And I think this is a profoundly misguided and pessimistic uh, position to take. 
I was once challenged in a workshop I gave. Someone said to me, uh, well, you're always talking to these uh, entities in the higher dimensions. Why have you never asked how to save the world? And at first I took it as a, a kind of facetious challenge on the part of someone who didn't really understand the protocols necessary for dealing with these entities on the higher planes. But then I thought more about it and I thought, uh, if this is a legitimate source of information, then this would certainly be a legitimate question to pose to these entities that profess such affection for humanity. And so the next time I entered into dialogue with the, the botanical logos, I posed this question. How can we save the world? And with a lag time of under a third of a second, the reply was given. Each woman should bear only one natural child, the Logos told me. I have to confess, this was an idea that I had not given a great deal of thought to. I don't think very many people have. And so I would just like to sketch for you the consequences of this and some interesting facts that I've come upon in the process of looking into it. First of all, let's just take it at face value. Each woman should bear only one natural child. Now, what would be the demographic consequences of this? Startlingly, within 50 years, the population of the Earth would be cut in half. Without war, epidemic, forced migration, government programs of sterilization, so forth and so on. If a policy like this were adopted uh, by even a major percentage of the world's women, uh, the impact would be immediate. Uh, in the succeeding 50 years, the Earth's population would fall by half again. If such a policy were in place for 150 years, a serious social debate would ensue on a subject inconceivable to us. Are there now enough people in the world? Uh, I took this idea and I began to look into the demographics of population and I made a very interesting uh, finding, which I've not heard widely repeated in the media, even uh, among the people who uh, are concerned about the population problem, and that's the following. A child born to a woman in Malibu or uh, the Upper East Side of Manhattan or Berkeley or Hampstead Heath. In other words, a child born to a woman in a high-tech industrial society in the upper class of that society will have between 800 and 1,000 times greater negative impact on the resources and carrying capacity of this planet than a child born to a woman in Bangladesh or Zaire. This is something we are not often told. 
when we think about the population problem, we tend to think that it's little brown people on the other side of the world who just perversely refuse to stop having children. But in fact, this is not what is going on. Converting a woman in Malibu to the notion that she should limit her uh, reproductive life to one child is the equivalent to converting 900 to 1,000 women to the same proposition in Bangladesh or Central Africa. If we were to go to the third world and meet a woman who told us that her ambition was to have 800 to 1,000 children before she died, we would imagine ourselves to be standing in the presence of a social criminal, a, a person so callous to the needs of the earth and the present state of humanity as to be almost beyond conceiving. Yet, in fact, this is the position held by any woman in a high-tech industrial society who chooses to have more than one child. There are a number of interesting factors about this. First of all, if we were seriously to propose this idea, one woman, one child, um, Traditionally, among demographers, population policies have been most difficult to sell in traditional societies, uh, traditional agrarian societies, because in those societies, having large numbers of children is linked to centuries of religious and social tradition. And so then great frustration spreads back uh, among the advocates of population control because these traditional women are unwilling to make this commitment. In contrast to this, think about the uh, women in Malibu or Hampstead or the Upper East Side of Manhattan. She is college educated. She it has access to excellent medical information. She is, she should be an easy sell to this idea. She is not burdened by centuries of religious tradition. She is a modern, secular, progressive, liberal person. Every woman of that type converted to this policy is the equivalent of converting 800 to 1,000 women of the other type to this policy. I mentioned at the beginning of this talk that it's important that the um, concerns and wishes of the individual be commiserate with this large-scale social goal. Notice that you can say to this college-educated, upper-class woman, how would you like to have more leisure time, save a pile of money, and be hailed as a political hero? All you have to do is limit your reproductive activity to one child. Now, to the obvious objection that people want large families and want more than one child, you say, the cities of this planet swarm with children without families. 
We're not saying you can't have a house full of children. We're simply asking that you address your unconscious genetic chauvinism and limit the expression of your own genetic heritage to one child. You may fill your house with unwanted children from other parts of the world. In fact, we encourage you to do so. So this is a plan where the... uh, goals of the individual, and I think most women of this class I'm talking about, would do desire more leisure time and are not immune to the attraction of saving money and would certainly like to think of themselves as behaving politically correctly. Now, another interesting thing about this proposal is it's the first plan I've ever heard for having an impact on the destiny of our species that does not depend on men. Women claim that men run and ruin the world very well. Let women limit their reproductive activity to one natural child and save the world and increase their leisure time and wealth at the very same moment. Now, several objections have been put forward to this idea. The first is, I've been told, that I do not understand the nature of political power and that political power resides in numbers and that what I'm asking people to do is to diminish their political power by diminishing their numbers. I reject this idea because if political power resided in numbers, China would be the most powerful nation on earth followed close behind by India. In fact, these are, uh, they hardly place in the first five. That's an archaic notion of what constitutes political power. Political power is constituted by money, the control of abstract resources. This is a plan by which more money would accrue to people who were making this step. So I've asked myself, why if our planet is truly threatened with extinction and social chaos by overpopulation, we've heard nothing of a plan of this sort. And I think that uh, after some thought on the matter, that the reason for this is because capitalism is the system under whose aegis we are operating, and nobody knows how to make a buck in a situation of collapsing demographics. In other words, capitalism unconsciously rests on the premise of an ever-expanding population of workers and consumers of the goods which capitalism is set up to produce. I don't think that the preservation of capitalism is a sufficient reason to ruin the world and rob ourselves and our children of a sane future. So I would uh, submit to you that this extraordinarily simple idea 
appealing to all the venal drives of the individual could in fact be harnessed into a set of social policies which would very, very quickly have a major impact uh, on the planet. In fact, I'm interested in seeing computer simulations run. How many of these high-tech women would have to convert to this notion before there would be an enormous freeing up of resources? A very small percentage. I mean, I would suspect that if 10 or 15 percent of the women in, a, in the wealthy classes of high-tech societies were to do this, their, the uh, impact on resource availability would be measurable almost immediately. It isn't the poor woman in Bangladesh who should be preached at to limit her reproductive activity. After all, her children rest on the earth as lightly as moths or mayflies. It is the children in the high-tech societies that consume more plastic, glass, steel, petrol byproducts and so forth than uh, uh, whole villages of people in the third world. So uh, I put this idea out, not only that it be debated on its own merits, but because I think it shows that in trying to solve problems that we've come to think of as intractable, we actually have fallen victim to a kind of failure of imagination, and that some of the problems which we tend to think of as insoluble are in fact quite soluble if we will only make the imaginative leap necessary to think about them in these kinds of terms. It was stunning to me to realize that without migration, war, disease, coercion, you could cut the Earth's population in half in 50 years and make a whole bunch of people leisured and wealthy in the process. It seems to me astonishing that these kinds of things have been overlooked. <clears throat> well, 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 a provocative uh, point of view to which, firstly, several objections immediately spring to mind, um, and secondly, um, to which I have a counter-proposal or an additional one. Good. Um, my, the Sheldrake plan for saving the world. Um, but before that, first, I should think that the incidence of single-child families probably is 10 to 15 percent of the class of women you talk about already. It's a very common phenomenon. Um, you know, the, the, it's, you know, the number of children is inversely related to income as a general rule. And uh, quite a lot of women already only have one child. Um, secondly, the adoption plan doesn't seem to me to work. It would only work if the woman in Malibu adopted dozens of brown-skinned uh, little children and then kept them living at a Bangladeshi level in her Malibu house. Um, the studies of adopted children, uh, adopted children in general are usually raised in a similar manner to people's own children and would immediately, Very important immediately be promoted to the thousand-fold con uh, consumers. I know families who adopted children from, from Sri Lanka and from 
Hong Kong and Vietnam and so on. And they're instantly promoted to the uh, maximum consumption class by the very act of adoption. So that point is, I think, quite invalid, of course. The adoption thing won't work. Um, so I think the principal objection to the scheme is... Uh, oh, the third point, this is very, the very policy the government of China has tried to enforce for two or three decades now, each family to have only one child. So the scheme has actually been tried. And one has to say, in the case of China, it's had some success. The birth rate is slower there than in India. But mm. it hasn't been completely successful because of the difficulty of enforcing it. Now, I take your point that it's easier to sell to women in Berkeley than it is to women in Shanghai. Um, but the, the, um, I think the biggest problem to overcome is the prejudice against only children. Since all of us have had two children each, um, if we ask ourselves why we had two children rather than one, we certainly didn't have them because we thought we'd get more prosperous by having two children. It must have been obvious before we did it that we'd be poorer. It must have been obvious that there'd be a smaller amount of available resources to be spent on them. But there's a very strongly established feeling that somehow there's something wrong with being an only child. And that seems to me the most powerful psychological obstacle that has to be overcome for this plan to be put into operation. Maybe I'll leave it there. Now I'll come later to my, my own patent scheme for dealing with the demographic situation. Yes. Well, as I understand it, uh, Terence, you challenged the botanical logos to provide a solution, uh, and it came up with this plan. And then you derived these uh, demographic consequences which are startling to you and interesting. And if we were to achieve the gain that this plan proposes, we would then need a third step, which I guess hasn't been done yet, and that is to solve the problem how this plan is to be implemented. So um, although I agree with Rupert that not wanting to insult the entity the fact is the plan is not very original um, still I'm going to suggest that you go back to the entity to ask how this would be implemented because in your demographics there is this very big if if every woman and so on now for every family to have one child let's say every woman to have one child is not demographically different from many families on the average having one child. That's a different implementation of the same policy. And many countries, developed countries, now do have approximately zero population growth, which means their average is about two. Right. So this one is less than two, and that's significantly less, and that's interesting. But as, as far as um, people adopting this plan, you know, putting this plan in force, persuading people, educating, like, there, here's the big if, how do you, what is step three, how do you implement this plan? And this is, as a matter of fact, the real problem in saving the world, and it's the one that we've been talking about in several meetings in the past. Do you use education? This is a common theory, that the reason that developed countries have achieved zero population growth is because of education, or do you change the mythology? I mean, all of the possibilities that we've discussed for making a paradigm shift, a social transformation in general, all of them would be applicable 
to this problem, but which? How? What? Through education, youth, rewards? How do you pr provoke the phase shift in consciousness which would result in people feeling as their personal goal to get the population growth of their neighborhood down to half? Well, minus fifty percent. You, you have to point out this thing that personal wealth and leisure time will increase if this policy is followed. In other words, people will follow their own best interests. So you have to. You can't appeal to some higher set of goals. You just have to say, wouldn't you like to work less and have more money? Well, I think there might be a solution to this problem, but I doubt that's it. I think that Rupert is right. There's a, uh, a preference based on actual experience for two, not for two, for zero or two. What we would need here is to have more zeros and still some twos. And what is really missing, I think, is for a large number of women to accept that they don't want to have any children at all. That is the real problem. And of course, there already are many women who don't plan to have any children at all. But to increase the proportion of women who are choosing that as their first preference, the, the number of children they want to produce their entire lifetime is zero, I think that's the difficulty. Yes, well, I think that celibacy is a misplaced impulse in this direction. Celibacy does, uh, it's arguable that it does anybody any good, but if it were redefined to be uh, thought quite a nice thing for people to make the sacrifice of having no children and such people were honored in society in the way that we now honor celibate priests or we recognize them as a special class if people knew that by having no children they would receive a certain measure of deference in society then large numbers of people might opt for that yes well that's reasonable I absolutely reject the connection between sexual activity and reproduction I know I've heard that there is some kind of connection but I think that <laughs> the, um, the women uh, uh, politically correct women in Berkeley and Santa Monica and so on that we're talking about, they are mostly having children because they want to, they've elected to. I mean, there are, there are lesbian women who have children because they want to. There are celibate people who have children because they wanted to have a child. They changed their pattern only because they wanted to have a child. That The wanting to have a child is um, the cause of reproduction, not uh, mysterious and unsuspected byproduct of, of being sexually active. So I think we need, in order to resolve this final problem in your, in the entity's suggestion, we need to find some educational or mythogenetic strategy whereby people would really yearn to have zero children, with or without sexual activity, they have all kinds of... Well, I think this could be done in all kinds of ways, through education, through tax incentives, through direct payment. Also, I'm not, I don't accept your... Direct payment. I, I don't accept the premise that faced with one's desire to have two children, or if that were linked to wrecking the planet, 
I think people would just have one child anyway. Yes, well, that's a possible breakthrough. And, in yes. fact, we don't know the consequences of having one child if it were generally accepted. I think a lot of the one-child talk that goes around has to do with the fact of the myth of the special character of the single uh, child. And daycares, all kinds of social institutions could be retooled to make sure that these children spend a lot of time with other children. Mm -hmm. So I don't see that as a, a tremendous barrier. I agree with you. I think we should encourage people, one, to have no children. Those people should be given special honors. Otherwise to have one. Otherwise to have one. And never to have two. And never to have two. And people should accept that nuclear families don't really exist in this society, and so they're going to be single parents, and that makes it more attractive to have just one. That's and right. With two single parents, each with one, combined in a house, then in fact they'd have a sort of nuclear family with two children, except both the parents would be female. And the other thing is to start <laughs> in these high-tech societies. Don't start in India and Sri Lanka. That makes no sense whatsoever. Start in the areas where you're likely to make many converts. Then uh, these third-world societies, which, always t are, which are tending to take their value systems from by emulation of the high-tech societies, would see the uh, positive feedback of these policies and could, would quite naturally uh, adapt them themselves in due time. Well, I think we do have a plan here. This sort of rounded out. Well, let's hear Rupert's other plan. No, I, let me just raise one further objection which has to be overcome. I mean, first, giving single children and single child families a better name is, seems to me the most important and you think the easiest aspect of this plan. Well, that's, I mean, that seems very important. And, Studies on, I never saw the case against two children until we'd already got to. When I read an article in a, a newspaper in Britain, The Guardian, um, which was a, a fervent denunciation of the two-child norm. I'd never ever seen this before. I'd seen plenty of things about what's wrong with only children. But this said that having two children is grossly abnormal. In, in the past, people had large families. We had multiple children, multiple relationships. With, you have, with, with two, you set up automatically a dyadic relationship of jealousy, possessiveness, and fighting, which creates a one-on-one -on -one competition situation, which is atypical of the whole of human race in the past, and that two children, in fact, may be a great deal worse than one. Now, that was a strong argument. It's the only time I've ever seen an argument put in favor of a single child as opposed to two. Mm. And it was a well-put case, and it had quite an impact on me. It might even have influenced um, my own thinking on the subject had I read it before we'd had two. Mm. Um, so <clears throat> this, this, this re-evaluation of the role of two versus one children is, is something that a great deal more attention could be paid to. Uh, 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 studies could be made on the subject. It may well turn out that this argument can be validated in all sorts of terms and, and that the two-child norm can be discredited in, uh, as a kind of myth or ideal in favor of the one-child norm. Now, that would be a highly constructive act together with social policies that would deal better with the problem of only children and all the rest of it. 
somehow ways of living or where children spend more time with other children. And anyone with a single child spends most of their time ferrying the child around to other houses so they can play with other children. This could be made easier. But there's a serious political objection to the whole thing, which is that in a democratic society, in a democratic society of one person, one vote, um, the, s the single most important thing that influences people's thinking about this question is being outvoted by the others. In, Ca in, Ireland, in Northern yes. Ireland, the great fear is the Catholics have more children than the Protestants, and they'll take over. In the Soviet Union, the fear that many Russians have is that the Muslim republics have enormous birth rates compared with uh, European Russia, and that in a democratic Soviet Union, they'll take over. The fear in the United States surely must be that for the woman in Malibu or Santa Monica, that within five years, maybe ten years, Hispanics will take over control of Los Angeles within 25 years or 10 years, 15 years of California, and within 50 years of the entire United States. And then they'll change the rules because they believe in larger families and they won't want to go along with this kind of norm. That's the kind of objection which I think will strike uh, people yes. very deeply and raise tremendous fears. I think there's an answer to that particular objection, which is by takeover, what you mean is claim an unfair amount of the wealth of the society political or the resources power. or the political power. But notice that um, in a society where this kind of policy was slowly taking hold, all segments of society would grow more wealthy and there would be a diminishing anxiety about resource availability because there would be an ever-expanding uh, available pool of resources. In other words, if we're going to uh, cut the Earth's population in half, then there's going to be twice as much land and wealth to go around. And so people would see themselves progressively uh, enriched, generally and specifically. I mean, in the world where the population is dropping by 50% every 50 years, every time you got your mail, you would learn that a distant cousin's line had died out no, and that his estates and bank accounts had been ceded to you. So you think a chain letter principle is the one that... That's the big hit again, because Terence, you already accepted the fact that in Bangladesh, the population growth is not going to decrease only in Santa Monica and Berkeley. No, at first in those places. I'm saying don't preach it in Bangladesh at first. Demonstrate it in the high-tech societies and everyone else will follow along. And as a society becomes more wealthy, that means more educated, uh, the case will make more and more sense. It's something that High, it's interesting that the burden of, of working this all out would fall on the women in the high-tech societies who are have claimed that they have never taken their due uh, role in human destiny, and here would be a chance for them to step forward and lead us all into a better world by their demonstration. Oh, I think in the case of our own experience in our own families and co-parenting arrangements, we 
had participated with our wives in a discussion about how many children to have and, and, and so on. And uh, that probably would be the case in these high-tech developed countries and families and so on. It would be a sort of a partnership of men and women that would have to come to this new understanding. But women would take a, clearly a, a flagship role in all this. Yes, well suppose that, yes, suppose that uh, Rupert's idea that a reason for large families and anxiety about the voting situation in democratic countries and well, we could change the vote so that uh, siblings of the same mother would share one vote. That would take care of that. <laughs> I think there are cleaner ways to take care of that. I mean, I see this objection, but I think it could be met that social planners, you could put in place incentives. I think it could be met. People are anxious. They don't want to lose power or wealth or land. And the very notion of a falling demographic reverses this pressure. And everyone even the, those for whom the policy is working least well are still living in a better situation than if the policy were not in place. If the policy is not adopted or something like it, we all lose. If the policy is adopted, most of us would gain. Well, if we accepted, just for the sake of discussion, that the present population of the planet is an okay number, then we don't have to seek a decrease, then zero population growth on a planetary scale would be our goal. Let's just, but it's just a more gentle, no it isn't true, but for the sake of discussion let's consider that. Um, then we already have achieved our goal in developed nations, many of them, and not in the rest of the world. So according to your idea, if this would apply to the one-child plan, that um, the success of this plan would then uh, diffuse over the underdeveloped countries, that we should see that already happening, and yet we don't. No, I think we do. Mm. As, uh, in, as standards of living rise, uh, population rates slow. This has been observed all over the world. I know, but the standard of living is not rising because the population is growing and outstripping the resources, and people have this enormous famine in Africa, and their response to this famine is to have more and more children in order to But for instance, survive. in Thailand, South Korea, the emerging uh, industri the industrial countries of Southeast Asia, uh, the population is slowing and the, it's generally accredited to the rising standard of living and expansion of the industrial base. Yes, I mean there's one further point, perhaps not such a serious one, which is the thing that terrifies people as well is is not just being outvoted by the increase of one section of the population relative to the other you know like Hispanics but also the question of immigration and in Vancouver for example within five years there'll probably be a majority of Chinese Hong Kong Chinese are flooding in every day great plane loads of them um, just buying up a lot of property in Vancouver uh, Mexicans are flooding into the southern 
parts of the United States. This idea of people flooding in. You know, the Germans are now getting worried that East Germans, have, they thought by unifying the country they could decrease immigration from East Germany. In fact, it's increased. And now everyone in Czechoslovakia, Poland, Hungary, with any ambition and who's prepared to move, looks to Western Europe as the place to go. Any moment, people in West Germany are really afraid. If there really is a kind of European economic free zone that includes all of Europe, a free movement of peoples, just what they've been claiming they want for, 50, for 30, 40 years, they've been claiming this is what they want. If that's what they get, a hundred million Russians will probably want to move to West Germany. Um, you know, the, the problem of immigration becomes is, is a very serious problem for a lot of people, and this is another w reason, as well as being outvoted by demographic increase within the, the, the same country, the problem of immigration from others. You know, the yellow peril, these kinds of things have been... But these immigrations are fueled by population, uncontrolled growth of population. Well, they're not, because Eastern Europe has had one of the lowest population growth rates in the world in the last 30, 40 years. So tough are the conditions being... That the population of Romania and other countries in Eastern Europe has actually been falling, much to the consternation of their governments. They've had the lowest population growth rates anyway. They've had negative growth rates. The people aren't moving because there are so many. They want, they're moving because of jobs. But you see, that's just a problem. We will always have problems. What we're trying to do here is figure out how to save the world no, from extinction. No, well, here's a chicken and egg problem because the, the, is the logical consequence of your theory is that we have to solve all the other problems of the world in order to solve the population problems. So the... Uh, preposition at the beginning of your introduction, that which which I concur that the population problem is the basic problem. That somehow that's not really so logistically. That you have to all nations have to be developed nations. Um, uh, people have to have education. They have to accept this new idea. They have to be impressed by the success of this plan as it's applied in other nations. Like all that implies the solution of all of these problems. So, the demographic uh, shifts of a constant population in new locations would end because the inequalities of resources and um, that this would have been solved. It, well, people will always migrate to where there are more jobs or better lives, but if they are truly not migrating because of overpopulation in their homeland, then they are emptying out their homeland, and that means in the future there will be empty land to be reintegrated into the global economy. Uh, the price Germany pays now by having uh, millions of Poles move into Germany means that in the next century, Poland will be a wonderful frontier for uh, economic growth and uh, a theater where people can build very stable, happy lives. Yes. Well, I... I'm not completely convinced, I have to say, um, because I feel that the, 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 these basic fears about immigration pressure, outvoted, other people taking over, are very, very deep-seated, and it would be extremely hard to remove those completely. I think you would just pass a law, as we have in the United States, that being here doesn't give you the right to vote. 
And most countries have laws like that. I don't know. Are there countries where if you're just there, you can vote? Most countries make a very clear distinction between their citizens and recent immigrants. And you have to establish yourself, and uh, citizenship is not automatic. No. Well, nevertheless, the fact is that in Germany they have a problem with Turkish immigrants. But it's not of being outvoted by them. Not, no, that's not the problem, in, except in certain localised areas. But there is this fear of kind of relative demographic, demographic increase. Well, maybe these are problems that are going on anyway. But I, I mean, I think that these would surface as soon as this policy of yours began to bite. I think that there'd be sort of nationalist movements, sort of white Caucasian movements springing up, you know, save the Caucasian race and that kind of thing. And I think one needs to have some kind of plan in place in advance to counteract this very obvious reaction that would come up immediately. Well, I, I think you're right, although these sorts of movements exist already. What you would hope is that this was a solution and that therefore the consequences flowing from it would, uh, over in a fairly short amount of time, outweigh the negative aspects of it and that people would see that their standard of living was rising, there were more resources to spread around, there was less a sense of encroachment and so forth and so on. I think if people could achieve zero population growth on a planetary scale, as we could regard this as a halfway step. From there they could progress. If you give them a period of several centuries uh, to get to the idea that what is really needed is a rapid reduction of the human population to 25% of its current well, but see, the longer you wait, the more resources you're using up. I mean, are there a couple of centuries worth of petroleum around? Are there a couple of centuries worth of hydroelectric power? Well, I think if zero population growth on a planetary scale were achieved in the very near future, if we could achieve that, we could achieve anything. Well, you would only achieve planetary ZPG if in large areas of the world you had less than ZPG. Because you, they would be t you would be taking up the slack in those well, laggard areas. Uh, but whatever it is, it's e easier to achieve than what you're proposing. Because if people in, in uh, Southern California, let us say, are, are seeing that their sector of the population is going to decrease to half within 50 years, in the same span of time that these other folks are going to be multiplied by four, then it's obviously not going to go. No one is going to accept that. Why not? The people in Southern California will be twice as rich. The people in the other area will be four times more impoverished. We're talking about, let's say, another sector of the population in Southern California, which is multiplying at a rapid rate with, let's say, 12% uh, population growth per year, so doubling the population in five years. That Through immigration and increase. In yeah, well, that's the birth rate in Mexico right now, so it's increasing 12% per year. It can't be 12%. No? No, it's more than about 3.5%. Oh, excuse me. Maybe 2%. Fix this in the transcript. Hmm. Well, I'm not saying you're not it's going to save the planet with a snap of the finger. But, but since the other things on the table to solve this problem are thermonuclear wars, synthetic viruses, pogroms, genocide, triage, 
and uh, computer-directed mass starvation, this sounds to me like a pretty good idea. Uh, well, you haven't heard my plan yet. <coughs> Have at it. This plan was um, conceived when I first went to India and um, was published in Nature in 1974. And the reason I had a slight... Weary attitude to plans for solving the world's population is that having had one myself and promoting it vigorously in international circles, including various sort of international aid agencies, and having working as part of one, I had the ear of um, people of influence and so on. I was in a good position to do it. Um, the fact that nothing's come of it over um, you know, the next following 17 years has um, slightly discouraged me. Anyway, the scheme as it goes is quite simple. It's based on the perception that in third world countries and in um, advanced ones, but largely in countries like India, where population growth is greatest, people have lots of children not because they want to have lots of children, qua children, but because they want to have lots of sons. Yes. That point is, I think, quite clear. That you can talk to any Indian, any Chinese, what they want is sons. They don't want daughters. On the yes, the Chinese throw the daughters in the river. Yes, and so the Indians practice female infanticide in Rajput and other castes. And, and um, they, they, what they go and pray, they spend good money on doing ceremonies in temples, pujas, to f- try and have more sons than daughters. Incidentally, this provides a, a test of the power of prayer of a statistical kind. I checked out the male-to-female excess in the birth rate in India as opposed to other countries. It's 106 to 100 males-to-females in live births in India. So it is in Western countries where there's no such strong prejudice. So one could in favour of sons. So clearly, on a large scale, the magical and religious means used to try and promote the appearance of sons are not effective, statistically speaking. They may shift the balance in individual cases. But anyway, this the fact is they want sons. Now, rather than trying to go against the tide, trying to persuade people to have less sons or less children, now, you give them what they want. Now, it's, it was discovered in the early 70s that male sperm swim more strongly than female sperm. And in vitro, in test tubes, of if you put them in a viscous solution, any viscous substance will do, um, and they have to swim through it. There's a progressive enrichment of male sperm getting through the other side. Um, there are other ways of separating them that have been investigated by the artificial insemination industry, because with cows, you know, you basically want to have females rather than males. So there's some research gone into this. Anyway, with human sperm, like many other species, male sperm swim stronger than female. My proposal was a simple technical uh, advance whereby a capsule of a viscous substance like carboxymethylcellulose, very cheap, buffered at an appropriate pH, would be inserted before intercourse into the vagina. The sperm would have to swim through it in order to fertilize the egg, and this would give a preferential enrichment of male sperm. Now, the thing may be only partially effective. It may only re- increase the chances of 60-40 instead of 53-50, uh, which is the present uh, ratio. However, even a slight increase, as long as it was perceived as being increasing the chances, would lead to rapid adoption of this thing. Even if it was banned by governments, a black market would spring up immediately. Um, 
uh, the product would be extremely cheap to make, assuming that this technical problem could be overcome. You know, you could make the product technically. Um, the result of this, let us assume that it could work to, with an efficiency, say, of promoting the chance of 75 to 25 in favour of science. A reasonable assumption. Um, it would be widely adopted. The proportion of boys would increase. The number of children required to achieve the right level, the desired number of sons would go down, so there would be a more adoption of birth control immediately. Um, but, of course, the main consequences would come within one generation time, which is about 15 years in India, since the average age of marriage for girls is about 14 in most parts of India. Um, then, of course, the, there would be, the consequence would be that there would be a shortage of girls. Not all these young men could get married to girls. Um, or even if you had a system of, of polyandry developing, the rate-limiting fact for population growth is, is the number of women. So, it, you, you know, it, women couldn't increase childbearing beyond one child a year maximum, however many men they were married to or had sex with or whatever. So there'd now be an immediate bottleneck on population growth. Population growth would begin to plummet. Um, there'd, of course, be social consequences associated with this. And most Westerners who had this plan said, well, of course, they'd all get militaristic. You'd have appalling wars. Uh, that's not the reaction I heard from anyone in India. The Indians don't have such a militaristic tradition. I mean, they, they, what would probably happen there is that you get a rising age of, at which men could get married. And instead of a dowry system, which is what causes people to not want daughters, you know, there'd be the rapid development of a bride price system as people would have to bid higher prices to get the available girls, um, which would solve another problem, namely the low social status of women and the desire not to have daughters. And within 30 years, the whole system would re-equilibrate re because the desire to have sons rather than daughters would cease to have the same motivation. The entire social pattern would adjust. There would be social problems in between, but nothing like the social problems caused by the doubling of the population in the next 25 years. This plan, uh, which would go with the grain, of what people want rather than against it. Technically uh, conceivable and probably achievable if enough research were devoted to it, none has been so far, um, is, I submit, another way of tackling this problem. Although it doesn't address at all the impact on resources of children born in high-tech societies. It's again a little brown people are the problem theory. Well, it's, it's, well, little brown people are the problem in, in large parts of Africa and Bangladesh and so on. Well, the, the, at least locally, for the other, yes. But on a global scale, it's the over-consumption uh, that goes on in the high-tech society. That's true. I read um, in the last week, and I've forgotten where, that the um, inhabitants of Orange County, California, consume as much in terms of uh, petroleum products, raw materials and energy is the entire population of the Indian subcontinent. This gives you a notion of the disparities that we're talking about here. Yes, yes, well, so, this, the, the it's a separate issue, I think, the resource depletion, uh, the factor of 800 to 1,000, that's a, a questionable. I think uh, Rupert's plan, which does sound like, like it would create a global decrease in the rate of population growth, 
this is definitely would help save the world. And furthermore, I think that we could go into business and make a fantastic profit by selling the product at reasonable rates in India and China. So let's do it. Well, I'm not sure it would save the world. The problem is resource depletion. However it happens... Well, it's we could just have rationing in Southern California, then that would cover it. By a factor of, uh, we're going to cut people back by a factor of 800 to 1,000? Well, that sounds difficult, but I think it's actually easier than affecting the population growth. No, I... I Well, uh, that idea of cutting back consumption in Orange County, California by a factor of 1,000 seemed to uh, even leave Terrence speechless, uh, at least for the moment, uh, until we get to the next tape. And I hope you picked up on what Rupert was saying about uh, three or four minutes into this trialogue, uh, the, the part where he was encouraging groups of people to get together and uh, search out questions whose answers could uh, actually be paradigm-shattering. You know, I, I know enough about a lot of our fellow Saloners to know that uh, right here in our own little clan there are a significant number of people who are uh, every bit as intelligent and uh, as creative as are these great trialoguers. So uh, even if it's just you and one other person, why don't you uh, start asking the big questions the next time you're together? You know, rather than uh, let the mainstream media dictate uh, what you talk about, I bet you'd be surprised at uh, how many people you know are thinking much like you are, but who are uh, just afraid to be the one to break the ice, so to speak. Uh, you know, maybe it's time to uh, stand up and be counted when it comes to the evolution of human consciousness, uh, because uh, if our minds and our emotions don't soon catch up to our technical know-how, uh, well, I think we're possibly going to be the cause of our own extinction as a species, you know? which, uh, of course, happens to unintelligent species, <laughs> I might add. And, uh, hey, what do you think about Terence's proposal that uh, every woman and uh, every man, I, I should note that he added in later years, but uh, that each person should only have one biological child? You know, at first I didn't buy into the idea, but uh, when he said that in just 50 years, that decision alone would reduce the Earth's human population uh, by half, well, uh, he at least got my attention. And, uh, <laughs> and what about the fact that a woman in the upper class of a high-tech society having uh, just one child has the same negative impact on the planet's resources as a, a third-world woman would have if she had uh, 800 children? Wow, uh, you know, I'm not sure those uh, numbers are valid. It'd be interesting to see uh, where they come from. But uh, when you, you put it that way, uh, assuming the numbers were valid, uh, <laughs> well, then the decision to have children really uh, becomes a lot more difficult. And uh, I have to admit that I'm glad that I'm uh, now past the age where decisions like that aren't going to come my way again. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm afraid that uh, the way ahead isn't going to provide many... Uh, many easy choices and uh, I don't really think that there's any person or any group with all the right answers so uh, the best you can do uh, at least the way I see it is uh, to just make the best decisions you can about uh, things like having children and giving up red meat and buying mainly locally uh, grown organic food uh, you know these decisions were once uh, pretty simple but 
now they're uh, no longer just casual decisions, but are uh, decisions that could have an impact not just on you, but uh, on your descendants and uh, on the planet itself. You know, and in my humble opinion, we're very near a tipping point. Uh, one that I have a hunch is going to uh, tip us into a much better basin of uh, consciousness, but uh, it's still a tipping point, and there's no better time than now to uh, live as impeccably as you can. You know, it's time to stand up and be counted, my friends, because uh, the stars are entering a new alignment, and uh, one that we aren't going to be able to ignore, I, I don't think. But uh, for the impeccable, well, uh, this may be the beginning of the best of times. And, uh, and that's what it's going to be when these podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon return in a couple weeks. Uh, if all goes uh, even halfway according to plan, uh, we're going to have some uh, really interesting new talks and interviews, uh, as well as a continuation of the trialogues, and uh, as well as some contributions from our fellow Saloners. Uh, in all, I'm counting on uh, having a wonderful time next year, and I... I wish the same for you. Now, before I go, I want to mention that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are protected under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharelike 3.0 license. And if you have any questions about that, just uh, click on the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.org. And if you have any questions, uh, comments, complaints, or suggestions about these podcasts, uh, just uh, add them as comments to the program notes on the psychedelicsalon.org blog uh, so that our entire community can get involved in these discussions. Or you can also uh, post your thoughts on the Psychedelic Salon forum, which you'll find at thegrowreport.com, uh, where I also spend some of my online surfing time each week. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. Mm-hmm.